What is up, everybody, and welcome to episode 279 of the Talking Chop Podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland. It is Friday evening. It's earlier than I would normally record, but that's because this person was available. I wanted them to come on the podcast, and the timing worked out. So I'm joined this evening by friend of the podcast, previous guest, Joe Lucci of Awful Announcing is here. Hello. Thanks for having me, Brad. My blood sugar is up, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> oh, good, good stuff there, Joe. Okay, so our plan, as you people probably saw when I clicked on the podcast, is to discuss the NL East today. We will do a little bit of Braves. I want to get Joe's thoughts probably near the end of the podcast. But uh, you know, every year we I like to take at least one decent look at the rest of the division before the season starts and. Joe observes all of baseball, which is helpful in this instance. And of course, there are three teams widely considered to be legitimate, like maybe playoff contenders in the East, aside from the Braves, so four in total. And then, then, you, have, then you have the Marlins, who made the playoffs last year. They played the, play the Braves in a playoff series. I kind of forgot that, honestly. Just to be honest with you, not that they played the Braves, but I forgot the Marlins were in the playoffs because, by extension, they had to make the playoffs to play the Braves in the playoffs. That happened. Yeah, I mean, they got there. They didn't win against the Braves. They, they didn't did really put up much of a fight against the Braves after like the first, what, three or four innings of game one. But, hey, they were there, and they can hang a banner like they're the Colts or something. <laughs> what a bizarre uh, season in which the Marlins, who everyone agreed were not very good, made the playoffs because everyone made the playoffs last year. Um, at any rate, back to normal in terms of the format this year, which is helpful. Uh, but before we get to the NL East, there was a little bit of news to touch, touch on here at the top. Um, the lead item in Braves land, um, I think on this fine Friday, March 12th is that Nick Markakis is officially retired. Um, I made the joke to someone that all it takes is one injury and, uh, Anthopolis will call him almost certainly. Um, but for now he's retired at the age of 37. Um, obviously I, really, I, I mean, all joking aside, you know, I, we poke fun at Markakis quite a bit on this podcast. All joking aside, he had a very nice career. No question about that. Almost 2,400 hits. Good player for a long time. Uh, six seasons with the Braves, of course. He was basically a league average hitter over that time. Um, well regarded in the clubhouse. I think uh, there's a little bit of some hagiography going on with Marquecas and how um, impactful he was on the field. But obviously, he was brought in to be that steady-handed vet, and he performed that role. So, Joe, did you have any uh, any thoughts on the Marquecas era now that it's officially over for now? <laughs> uh, he was a fine servant to the Braves that had a fine career. And it is impossible to have any sort of rational conversation about him because everything with him goes to extremes and that is not the player he ever, ever was. Uh, my lasting Nick Markakis memory will be the one home run he hit in 2020 in his first full game back, which I called on Twitter and then he never hit another one again. Yeah, that's uh, that's wild. Actually, I didn't even realize that, I guess, in real time here, but you know, the fa famously, he had the one, he had, you know, 2018, he was quite good for most of the season. Made the all-star team, uh, had the big home run at opening day, I believe it was in 2018, that uh, drew a lot of attention. It was pretty pretty okay again, actually, 2019, for the most part. Ran out of gas late. Last year was kind of a lost year for him, and it was kind of, no one is surprised that he's retiring. Um, I'm not sure there was any, any much interest in him outside of Atlanta. Um, obviously, he stepped away last year and then came back. All that stuff, and you're right. There's not really a conversation to be had in a public space about Marquecas because it involves too many people on both sides. Uh, there is one side in which he is, I would say, pretty vastly overrated for his on-field play in the last half decade, and then there's, there's and there is another side that thinks he's just terrible. And that wasn't that wasn't true either. The truth is actually in the middle, um, for the most part, and, and that's just not a fun conversation to have. But for the most part, a very nice player, um, not not a, not not a Hall of Famer, but like in the hall of good, you know, hall of, hall of pretty good career. Like he was obviously better in Baltimore, but he still was, had some nice moments with the Braves. So six years, I think somebody brought this up to me earlier. I'm pretty sure he's like top 100 all time in Braves, like war and that kind of stuff. I'm not sure what that actually means, but you know, he, six years, not, not, not too many guys play for the organization as a full timer for that long. So there's an impact there on some level. He still had 15 doubles in this shortened 2020 season. And if there was one thing we can all agree he was reliable for, it was uh, Nicky doubles. He would uh, really had a knack for, you know, just kind of dumping a ball into the corner and strolling into second. And uh, he ends his career 54th all time on the all time doubles list. 
That's pretty impressive. 514. Yeah, that's that's a lot of doubles. I mean, he got on base as well. That's something that, you know, I know even in the midst of us poking fun at him at times, he got on base and hit right-handed pitching well, even pretty much when he was struggling and everything else a lot of the time in Atlanta. He, he did that. The doubles is uh, his number one claim to fame. But that's a lot of hits, man. Like, he was, he was durable. He played every day for a very, very long time. And that matters, too. So uh, there will be time to remember the Marquecas era in Atlanta, but uh, it seems to be over. I'm not joking, though. W- would it surprise you, as, as our final question, our final topic on Marquecas today, would it surprise you if the Braves had one injury and we look, and we look up in May and he's, like, at least percolating as an option? Because that would not stun me. I'm just saying. Um, I could see some people kind of floating it out there and him shooting it down because <laughs> yeah. it, it seemed like a pretty definitive statement from did. him this week for his walking away. Whereas when he opted out last year, I mean, I could see him coming back, which he ended up doing. And uh, after coming back last year and showing that he didn't have as much in the tank as he may have expected, I think with the uh, a longer off season with less work. He uh, might look at that as not the best time to come back yet again. Yeah, it was time. And uh, you know, you know, you're, you know, you're an older player when you're older than me at this point, I'm in that age right now without divulging. Um, I'm in that age where if you are older than me and still playing a professional sport, you are definitely old for that sport. So, uh, and he is, he qualifies as being older than me. I'm not sure if he's older than you, Joe, but he's older than me. Oh, he is absolutely older than me. <laughs> <laughs> I was a joke. I, I knew I knew he was older than you. Uh, alas, that's enough of Marcakis. Um, you know, again, congrats to him. Great career. And that will uh, be the last time we talk about him for a while, I think, on this podcast. Um, the other small piece of news, and honestly, we're recording this at 8.40 p.m. Eastern on Friday, March 12th. This might be out of date quickly, but John Heyman reported earlier today that the Braves are interested in Michael Franco, um, former Philly, former Royal last year, a 28-year-old corner infield type Formerly a pretty high, highly regarded prospect. It's not necessarily panned out on that level, but he's been a, a real contributor for a half decade in the major leagues. But kind of an interesting one because he's a corner guy. He's a corner guy. He's played, some th- he's played some third base. He's not very good necessarily at third base. He's been a very inconsistent hitter, but he's a free agent. And we're here in mid-March. The Braves obviously have some wiggle room, but they have Jake Lamb now. They have Kipnis. They have Camargo. Like, I'm not sure where he would fit in, but... What, did you have a reaction when you saw that little uh, that linkage come up there from Heyman? I mean, it was one of those types of deals where you look at it in spring trading and say, oh, he's still a free agent? Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. There's nothing really wrong with it. He's not going to displace Austin Riley at third base. He's not going to get 500 plate appearances. He's probably not going to get 200 plate appearances if he makes the opening day roster wherever he signs. But he's a guy that can contribute, though he's a very – frustrating player. I remember from watching him in his uh, younger days in Philly, it was uh, really painful to watch at times, but he's a guy that seemingly has a lot of potential, a lot of skills, has been able to put it all together and might actually benefit from kind of a reduced role. Yeah. It's interesting too. Like he's been very inconsistent, like year to year. For example, he was really terrible in 2017 he bounced back to being pretty solid, like starting caliber in 2018. He was awful again in 2019. And then last year, his numbers were pretty good in Kansas City. I will say the underlying numbers were not as good. Like he had a career low on uh, exit velocity and barrel rate, some of the stuff that you would uh, say is a red flag. So, but he's not old, like he's 28. So, I mean, he, he's probably not washed. It's just, I'm not sure how good he is truly. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting question. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's a guy that really just is going to have to kind of settle into a bench role at this point in his career because, you know, he got so many years with a bad Phillies team to try to like solidify himself as a everyday player. And he really just could not do that. So now we're in a situation where he is really just going to have to kind of bounce around at, from a organization to organization, fill out a bench role kind of reminds me, obviously not of the skill set, but kind of reminds me of Jeffrey and later in his career when he got all those years with the Braves and then bounced around from team to team trying to find a regular home and was really just kind of a consistent benchy type bat. Uh, yeah, shouts shouts to uh, Jeff, my high school classmate. Uh, that actually is a good good call. Very different in terms of like what they actually. What, what their appeals were and Frank Horse highs were higher, but 
Yeah, that's actually not bad. Um, oh, by the way, something I I came across and looking at this real quickly at, when it first came across my timeline, I assume this was not the case too. But Franco is not a platoon guy. He is like you know career eighty eight WRC plus against lefties and ninety two against righties. I thought just I don't know why I thought this, but I thought he was more of a masher on one side, and he's really not. So not like a ideal specialist, which is maybe why you know he won't be like a perfect bench option, but maybe that balance lets you have some depth. I mean, the Braves do have Riley. They have lamb. I don't know what the plan is. I, I do think that Franco in a vacuum is a good pickup. If the Braves can get him just because he is a talented guy and the Braves don't have like a rock solid bench right now, but I'm not sure what the plan is there because they have some other options now with lamb, especially. Yeah. And at the very least, he's a guy you could probably put in triple a and he wouldn't get, uh, plucked away by another team and he could kind of do his thing there in case one of the bench bats struggles or gets hurt to get called up. And that makes sense. And obviously, like I said, uh, there was part of the reporting from Heyman was that it could be decided by Saturday. So if you're listening to this later on, it's already signed. Uh, or if the Braves have him, you can consider this the emergency podcast on Michael Franco. Um, okay. Before we get uh, to the NL East, it's a good time to take a break to hear from our sponsors. So hold on tight. We'll be, we'll be right back with a an, an exhaustive preview of the NL East. All right, Joe, uh, let's discuss the division in which the Atlanta Braves play their baseball games. Um, I guess top line is that the Braves are the betting favorite to win the National League East again. If you look at the Vegas's over-unders and some of the uh, betting markets, the Braves are still favored, albeit slightly, after winning the last three in a row. And then the projection systems, and I'm sure you saw all this discourse in the previous weeks, but um, the Mets are projected to win the division by, like, zips and Dakota by a large margin. Uh, that was a big story, of course. Um, I, I, broadly speaking... I guess before we dive into the teams, how do you view this? Because the Braves are obviously three-time defending champions, but uh, I think it's objectively correct to say the Braves were not like, you know, far and away the best talent teams in all three of those seasons. Whereas now the Braves are pretty good on paper, but it seems to be skepticism again on some level. And I think when you look at the projections, the numbers are not exactly what they seem like with zips the Braves are projected to have the fifth best record in baseball so saying that oh they're the Mets are favored over them and that projection system kind of doesn't necessarily rub me the right way because it's not like the Pocota laughability where the Braves are 10 games worse it's it's very marginal it's not some kind of blowout and as for uh the Braves roster this year I mean you know, it's startling. All these guys that were like potential and what can they do like Acuna and Albies and Swanson and even Riley to some extent. I mean, they're all here and some level of production can be expected from them where in like 18 and 19, there were a, a lot more question marks around a lot of these guys. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case. Uh, this is more of a sidebar because of what your day job is and covering the media. What did you make? And I, I talked about this a little bit when it, when it, when it happened on the podcast. What did you make of sort of the media story of Pakoda and how it was so widely panned that Craig Goldstein and friends had to like do a media tour about how bad it was? And like Mike Mike Petriello wrote a, really actually a pretty good piece I thought on MLB.com about it, but. What did you make of like the the firestorm that created when Pakoda was so low on the Braves and I guess so high on the Mets? I feel like almost every year there's a story about Pakoda being low or high on a team and it becomes a thing. And then by the end of the year, we forget about it and forget if they were right or wrong. I think I think it was last year Pakoda had the Cubs like fourth in the NL Central. I think that's right. And they ended up winning the division. So it seems like something like this happens every year. But when you have a team that did not get appreciably worse and you have them like at like what did they have that 82 wins i think it was something ridiculous like that yep I, I think when you constantly miss in uh that direction that you kind of need to look at the system and figure out what's wrong and if there is something you're overlooking there that you need to fix for 
future editions. And I'm not sure if they've actually been able to do that or not. But uh, and I also think a lot of the reaction from like Braves fans was way over the top. But that's how (laughs) that's really just how social media goes. They see something and it's like point click attack, attack, attack. Well, it was also the perfect storm. First, I do agree with you. It went over it went over the top, but it's perfect storm of a team that just won three division titles in a row that might be as good as they've been the entire time on paper, maybe even the best they've ever been on paper. And to hear to see that and equate that success and then turn around and they're projected to be, you know, 10 games behind some other team that hasn't done anything in that whole time. Uh, I, th- I knew it was, as soon as I saw the projection, I knew it was going to be a disaster and it, and it was anyway, I thought I had to ask you about that. Um, I want to break it down a little bit into some sections and also some teams, but um, let's just start with the Marlins to get them out of the way because the Marlins are projected by everyone to finish last. I guess before we move on, do you think that they're the worst team in the division? Just uh, I think they're the worst team in the division by like a significant margin. They uh, ended up going what was it, thirty-one and twenty-nine last year. Made the playoffs. They like outperformed their win differential by, I want to say, five wins. Yeah, A lot of that run differential was skewed by that game in Atlanta. But still, like a lot of their wins were tight and close and not the kind of thing you want to see replicated. And a lot of their record was also predicated on a hot stretch at the beginning of the season, sandwiched around their huge COVID break and – the last week of the season when they played teams on the beach to clinch a playoff spot, they went, I want to say, 11-2 and two over that first week and a half and that last week. If you take that out, I mean, they're a sub-500 team. They really just did not impress me overall during the season. And this offseason, they added a few relievers and Adam Duvall to this roster that needed a lot more help. And I think when they have to end up playing teams like the Dodgers and Padres and the rest of the uh, NL West this season and the good teams in the NL Central and the NL East 19 times apiece, I think that a lot of the uh, 60 game small sample size is really going to even out there. Yeah, I mean, their Vegas over-under is like 71, 71 and a half, which tells you, like, that's 20 games under 500. Like, that's that's a pretty ugly record. It's not the worst in the league. They're not that bad, but they're not in the same caliber, at least on paper, as the other teams. They have some pitching, you know, Sixto Sanchez, Pablo Lopez, um, Alcantara. Like, they have some decent arms. Um, it's really the offense. Like, the only position player they have, I looked this up on Fangraphs, Brian Anderson, who had a good year last year, is the only guy that's a position player for them projected to have even a two-war season. And that's it's tough to win uh, over a full campaign in a tough division when you, you just don't have the bats, and they don't really have the bats. I, mean, I, I, love, I love Adam Duvall, like my own uh, cousin or something. But, I mean, if he's, he's maybe your second-best hitter, <laughs> that's not what you want. And a lot of that offense doesn't have a lot of room to, like, grow on. I mean, Anderson, Jorge Alfaro, and uh, Isan Diaz are the only regulars projected that are under 30. These are not, like, young guys with room to, like, grow and get better. There's This is a somewhat older offense, and I think that uh, if some of these veterans start to struggle, their offense could be in a uh, world of hurt this year. Yeah, so I want to get them out, get, get them out of the way. I think none of neither one of us expect them to contend. I, I guess they could put together a half a season where they did what they did last year, basically, and they hang around. But I think over a full, over a full season, I can't see the Marlins being in the mix here. Um, you know, the other two things, I, I, I want to kind of group these together. The projection systems that I have seen from Fangraphs to Pakoda even to Vegas over-unders kind of put the Nats and the Phillies almost in a tier. Um the Nats a little bit ahead of the Phillies, according to Vegas over-unders. But um, I guess my second broad question is, are those are those two teams three and four, or is one of those teams closer to the Braves and the Mets than the other? That's a tough question. I, I, I would put the Mets in that group as well. Yeah, and baby. I say, <laughs> and I would say the three of them are closer to the Braves than they are to the Marlins, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Like, I could see either of those four teams winning the division if everything breaks right for them, whereas the Marlins would need a lot more to happen. 
But uh, I think there is more to build on with the Phillies and Nationals, and they're getting a lot of credit for. But at the same time, they still have significant flaws. Yeah, just just so you know what I was not not for you, Joe, but for the listener. Um, like the Vegas over/unders right now today, as I looked, Braves ninety-one and a half, highest in the division. Mets ninety and a half. Nationals eighty-four and a half, and Phillies eighty-one and a half. So. Those are like not huge tier breaks, but to your point about them being closer to the Braves and the Marlins, they, that kind of bears out in there as the, and that as well. Um, the Phillies, people are a little bit skeptical of. Um, I think that's probably because they just, man, they were kind of. Uh, it was not a not, not, not a great year in Philly last year. Let's just say. Um, but I guess we'll, let's go there now. So, the Phillies have a, have a few guys who are very famous and good. Uh, they have Aaron Nola. They have Real Muto. They have Bryce Harper. Um, Zach Wheeler is pretty good. Um, but they also have a bunch of guys who have underperformed. They now have Archie Bradley as the closer of the team. Um, interesting to kind of focus there. And, uh, I'll just say this, the, the bullpens kind of were the place to die, um, across, uh, this division last year, other than the Braves. Uh, Miami, Miami was the worst in baseball, according to Fangraphs in, uh, bullpen war last year, but Philly was third worst and the Nats were 23rd. So that could be a differentiator as well. At any rate, uh, what do you, what scares you if you as, as a brave observer? What what scares you about the Phillies? Like what what could happen where the Phillies uh, put it all together here? I mean, they have a really good offense. Say what you want to say about Bryce Harper and him him being overrated and so on and so forth. He's still a really good hitter, and he might not even be the best hitter in that offense because they have Real Muto. Alec Baum, his uh, fielding has been a meme among Braves fans for the last year, but he can really hit well. I want to say he finished second or third in the NL Rookie of the Year voting. Gene Segura has been a solid player for years. Uh, Reese Hoskins is another uh, butcher in the field, but he can mash. They have a lot of guys on offense that can hit the ball. They can put some runs on the board. Problem is the bullpen. The bullpen is just a complete disaster. Yes. Last year it was calling it a train wreck is an insult to train wrecks. <laughs> and they went out and kind of tried to revamp the bullpen. They've brought in a lot more arms. And I think a lot of the issues with their bullpen is the fact the team had to play nine double headers last year, including, I want to say like five in the last three weeks of the season. That's a lot to put on any team, but uh, they can't be as bad as they were last year. And I think there's some room for natural improvement there. And for as much as we rag on them, I mean, they should have made the playoffs, but they lost, I want to say like five of their last six or something like that to fall just out of the playoffs behind the Brewers. Yeah. I think that, the bullpen is a concern. Is a concern. Um, it was really like comical at times, but you know they actually were the best rotation on paper of in the division last year. They were third best in in Major League Baseball and in rotation WAR by Fangraphs last year. They pitched very well, like kind of surprisingly well if you look at it. Um, and their offense, to your point, like they were they were pretty good. That they were second in the division, I believe, maybe third third in the division last year in offense, um, in terms of the underlying categories behind the Mets and the Braves in some order. But you know, Philly, they're projected to be fourth by most of these systems in Vegas. But it certainly would not surprise me if they finished second. I think it would mildly surprise me if they won the division. But even then. They could. They are capable of doing that if they put it together. If the bullpen and you know bullpens are volatile, in general, if that bullpen is suddenly average, then projecting them to, to be 500 feels a little bit silly because then they're better than 500. I think. Oh yeah, no doubt about it. And you can easily see a scenario where they are able to put it together to win the division with horses like Nola and Wheeler in the rotation. Zach Eflin was low key great last year. Yep. They brought Matt Moore back over. Apparently, he was in Japan. I did not know this, but I didn't uh, either. He, he's back, and he's a guy that has uh, shown flashes of brilliance. Uh, I was going to say in the near in the near past, but it really hasn't been <laughs> near past. It's been way longer than I thought. But like, they have the potential to win like ninety games. I think that's like. 
5% likely outcome, but I can see it happening as unlikely as it may be. Yeah, I'm with you. They have they have some upside. I think that I would pick them fourth right now, but I I, I think I have them I will waver potentially on the Phillies and the Nationals, uh, depending on the Nationals. National, we'll, we'll talk about Washington now. Washington is really top-heavy, and we kind of all know that. But, um, you know, projection-wise, the Nats are projected to be the best rotation. Um, I guess interchangeable with the Mets, if you, depending on where you look. But the Nats still have Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin at the top. Um, now, behind that, it's John Lester, question mark, and uh, Joe Ross, I guess. So that's a little bit interesting. And then you have the lineups, kind of the same thing. Like they have Juan Soto and Trey Turner. Uh, Juan Soto is really good. Um, then like Kyle Schwarber is a big part of this offense. Josh Bell is there. Carter Keboom has not been very good since he arrived. I don't know what to make of them of the Nationals, to be quite honest with you. Um, but I, I know that they're kind of just like in the middle in every category. If you look at all the projections that are out there, they're like, you know, third in the division in like most everything. Uh, I believe this maybe second in rotation, but that's not where you want to be, but it's also a spot where things go well. They have talent and last year was kind of a weird one, but they won the World Series two years ago. They have Juan Soto, who is one of the best players in baseball, and yes. he's a He's the kind of guy that can like drag that offense out of a potentially bad situation if some of these guys are not hitting. And when you have a guy like that in your lineup, it's uh, it's a very good thing. Thank you, Captain Obvious. But something that is going overlooked is last year the Nationals were the worst defensive team in baseball, and they added Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber, who in 2020 individually were two of the overall worst defenders in baseball. And no DH. <laughs> And no DH. This defense is somehow getting worse. And no matter how many guys you have, like Scherzer, Corbin, Strasburg, that are dominant and can miss bats, when you put balls in play and have uh, some holy gloves behind them, it could be a really dicey situation. And that I could see the Nationals kind of imploding at times like the Phillies did last year because of their bullpen, just because of their defense. I can see balls just falling in that would normally be caught or getting through the infield or anything like that just because they don't have the uh, gloves that they might need. Yeah, the defense matters a ton um, when the big three is not pitching, like John Lester is a guy at this point in his career, you better have some defense behind him. He's going to get hit. Like he's going to get, uh, dinged up a little bit and you need some gloves behind him. Uh, they, they did bring in Brad hand to help the bullpen and Brad hand at last check was quite good. Um, that helps them, but they were again, like I think I said it earlier, but they were a bottom seven or eight bullpen in the league last year. Um, and that's only one guy like Brad hand helps you, but the rest of the bullpen is not particularly awesome on paper. So, you know, they have legitimately four or five stars, um, but this is a stars and scrubs roster for the most part. So we'll see. They also, on, they also only got five innings out of Strasburg last year. So yeah. that in turn put a little more stress on the rotation, which put more stress on the bullpen and so on and so forth. Uh, a guy like Austin Voth made 11 starts last year and now Ooh. he's probably not going to be in the rotation. You can worry about him in the bullpen and he might give that bullpen a little more uh, length and uh, a little more potential going forward. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, the Nationals, at least the, the messaging out of there, and you can believe it or not, is they're kind of like throwing last year out. And I, I think I would too if I was them, just kind of mentality-wise. You know, knowing that a lot of the core is back from the World Series team. Granted, they were not the best team in the league two years ago when they won the World Series, but that they, you know they got hot at the right time and it happened. Um, but then, you know, the short season last year, does that make sense to you? Like, I guess this is a more of a broader question, but I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask it to you anyway. Like, how much do you make of last year involved? Like, not just for the Nationals, but for every team, just because of how weird it was, how this, how small, how small the samples were, the conditions. Like, do you are you using last year like heavily in your projections, your mental like pro processes, in the same way that you would normally, or is it almost like going back to twenty nineteen? 
I mean, I think you can use it as kind of a mulligan for the teams that struggled and for the teams that were good. I think they can use that that as something to build on. Like, look at a team like the Brewers. I mean, they finished around 500, made the playoffs, and they didn't go crazy this offseason, but they arguably made the team better, and they were able to, like, rip the Band-Aid off a little bit with someone like Ryan Braun. If uh, in 2020, if uh, it was a full season and they had like a full year of Braun, would it be easier or harder for them to move on from him this year? Like the Nationals last year after winning the World Series, they like brought Kendrick back. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman came back before he opted out. He's back again this year, but he's going to play less of a role. So a lot of guys from that team that they probably should have moved on to, they ended up keeping around when they shouldn't have. Now those guys are gone. They can kind of start fresh a little bit. Adam Eaton, another one, a guy who now is playing elsewhere. I think for a team like them, they can really look at 2020 as just kind of a pass year, look forward to 2021 in the future and go from there. Yeah, that, that all makes sense, I think. Um, all right, I guess I'll ask you about the uh, New York Metropolitans now because they are the trendy team in the division, uh, Pakota aside. Even beyond Pakota, like the, the more responsible projections, uh, like I think the Fangraphs combined projection has the Mets at number one in the division, 92 wins. Um, I will say, this is a big part of, the, of whether you believe in the Mets or not. Um, last year, the, the Mets were number two in baseball in WRC plus, not the division in baseball in WRC plus, and they finished 13th in run scored. So like where you fall on that spectrum might tell you how you feel about the Mets this year. It's like either they're actually really good and and they got unlucky offensively last year, or they're more middle of the pack and there was some noise in there. Of course they brought in Lindor to really help things. Um, and then of course the rotation is, what it is. Um, Jacob deGrom is the best pitcher on the planet, I think, at this point. Is that controversial? I'm not sure if it is or not, but I think he is. He's really, really good. Um, and then you have Stroman and Syndergaard, and if he does anything, you have, you have Carrasco, you have Taiwan Walker is around. Uh, the Mets are good on paper. I mean, as much as it's funny to do the little Mets thing, the Mets are good on paper, but they are the Mets, and things go wrong for the Mets. So uh, what do you, I guess, what do you make of this team? Because it's going to be interesting. All right, saying this makes me, like, makes me physically ill. I don't want to say it, but I think I have to. <laughs> Uh-oh. If the Mets stay healthy, I think they will win the division. Oh, God. I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. You, you certainly can argue. I mean, just before before, before anybody yells at you, uh, you could argue, I think, pretty pretty easily that they have the they have the best talent. Um, the, pro- the problem is their rotation is calling it injury prone might right. be uh polite except, except for DeGrom every pretty much everybody else is a question mark on some level so talent and this is the big thing about talent versus like projection because yes you, the way you put it there if they stay healthy if that if that sort of encompasses Stroman and Syndergaard and Carrasco like yeah if those guys stay healthy and they're like their normal selves then this is an elite rotation but that's obviously not something you can bank on. <laughs> yeah, and I, even looking at DeGrom, I mean, you know, he's amazing, incredible. Uh, throwing last year out because there were only 60 games, he's thrown uh, 200 or more innings in three straight seasons. He's now 32, will be 33 in June. Hey, him and I share the same birthday, I imagine that. Uh, so there's some mileage on that arm, and... I'm not saying he's going to blow out. I'm just saying there's a possibility that uh, it will get caught up with him. And last year we saw the situation where the Mets rotation really was not healthy and not good Pastor Grom. And it was a disaster. Rick Porcello had an ERA of five and a half. Steven Matz and six stars had an ERA near 10. Uh, Robert Gesellman made four starts ERA near 10. Uh, Michael Waka was apparently a Met. I had no he idea. He, yes. he had an ERA of over six. Uh, Seth Lugo, who is a guy they've loved for years, had an ERA over five. And DeGrom was his usual amazing Cy Young self. So a guy like DeGrom can't carry the rotation for the whole year on his own. He's going to need help. And if he gets help from Stroman, Walker, Carrasco, Syndergaard this year, 
the Mets have all the potential in the world to win the division. But if those guys start missing time and the Mets have to go down that pecking order, have to go back to someone like Gesellman or uh, longtime Marlin and a uh, friend of the Braves, Jordan Yamamoto, if guys like that have to uh, make significant starts for the team, I really cannot see them being contenders. Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of volatility here. The other thing that I wanted to point out about the Mets is that the Mets are projected by the numbers to be a good bullpen, and I don't know if I trust that. Like, Edwin Diaz is a controversial projection on his own. Like, he's been awesome at times. He's been really, really bad at times. Um, he's their end-of-game end of guy. Um, and then there's the lineup. Like, obviously having Lindor makes you better. Um but aside from Lindor and uh, and Alonzo and I guess like Conforto maybe they have a bunch of guys who are pretty pretty solid on paper, but no, nothing that's terribly scary for the opposition. So I don't know. I, if it wasn't the Mets, I feel like I would project the Mets very comfortably as a top two team in the division. But there's something in my brain that won't allow. And this is not like me. I'm I'm very analytical. I'm very much not prone to doing this kind of thing but i just can't get over laughing at the mets and just not believing it because the mets i'm, I'm like we've honest. seen this but we've seen this before with the mets they yeah. come in with all this hype everything has gone together and then something falls apart in the most ridiculous metsy fashion ever like you went a cespedes breaking his ankles on a horse <laughs> that happened didn't it that really, that, really that, that absolutely did happen man it's yeah. not even that long ago either uh yeah i mean I don't know. They're they are really talented. I want I want to be I want to, I want to make it clear that we are on the record about that. The Mets are very, very talented. Like you bring in Lind like Lindor. It cannot be overstated. Lindor is a top what ten player in baseball, fifteen something like that. Like he's. Awesome. I mean, I would say like top ten or fifteen. Like at worst. Yeah. At his peak, when he's healthy and on, he's top five in my mind. Right. So you bring that guy in. There, you you have you still have Degrom. You have the the upside, the rotation. You have some uh, returning guys who are pretty solid at, at the at the plate. You do have some talent in the bullpen. I mean, the upside is real with the Mets. It's just whether you believe in it enough. Um, I'm kind of a TBD on that, quite honestly. But I think that, I think their roster. This is again it's kind of what you said earlier. But I think their roster with reasonable health is in the top two with the Braves. That's, that's not even like a, a take. It's, it's, it's very obviously better roster wise than the Nats and the Phillies. I think that's just me, but it's just the volatility. It's like, how do you project this team? Because everything seems to go wrong with them, but if it doesn't, then there's something going to be pretty, pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with you. And then there's guys like Jeff McNeil and JD Davis who have been productive. They signed James McCann for like a billion dollars. This offseason as well, which was weird because they jumped really quick on him and it's like, OK, catching is at a premium, but that's the guy. I mean, he's fine. Know? He's like a, you know, league average starting catcher. Like he's not bad. Like it's a lot of money. But if, when your owner is a billionaire, it maybe doesn't matter. But that was one of those things that like I had forgotten that happened. Quite honestly, I was doing the research for this podcast and I was like, oh, they signed James McCann. And then I, re and then I remember I was like, they gave James McCann a lot of money and they did. It was four year deal, I think. Three year deal. They, four year deal for 40 million. That's a lot of money. And, and this is like two years after they signed Wilson Ramos for, I want to say like two years and 20 million. And he was a busted catcher, but I think the thing on him was he really shouldn't have been an everyday catcher. And yet the Mets sign him to be the an Mets. everyday catcher and play him in 140 games and run him into the ground. Sounds like the Mets to me. Um, I don't know. The, the Mets are interesting. Uh, we've kind of, I think appropriately laid the groundwork for how volatile the team is could be they could they could win 95 games they could win 75 games and i would not be surprised by either one of those outcomes <laughs> it's crazy but i mean i'm not trying to be funny here but i, I promise you like if a couple things go wrong like if, if degrom like you said if degrom is just like human or hurt honestly even if degrom is awesome in the way he was last year the rest of the, the rest of the rotation was so bad that it didn't even matter like how good degrom was like it mattered on those days but they just everyone fell apart in terms of either opt-outs or injuries. And these guys are, you know, everybody they have but DeGrom 
is either injury prone or has a recent absence or has like inconsistency issues. Like they brought in Taiwan Walker. It's like the most Mets signing in the world. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, man. Man. It, and I'm, I'm wondering about Pete Alonzo because he was still good, but not that superstar that he was two years ago, which, which guy is he? Is he the guy that's going to hit 50 homers again? Or is he more the guy that's, going to hit like 30 over a full season especially if we're going to have ball changes this year there's going to be a uh, lot of volatility with him he only had six doubles last year pete alonzo six doubles you should get a lot more than that from your first baseman yeah uh i really just uh want to see what happens with him too if he ends up being like the next mike piazza in mets history or if he's the next i don't know dave kingman i'm not sure I'm looking at the Fangrass projection page for the Mets, and uh, they have Alonzo. This is their mel- this is their combined projections between I believe between Zips and Steamer, but they have Pete Alonzo as projected for 2.7 WAR, which is a very very solid season. It's also um, behind Conforto, so I guess yeah, he, he'd be the third best position player behind Lindor. Um, oh no, sorry, fourth behind McNeil and, and Conforto. If he does that, I, I'm a little bit less scared of the Mets. If he goes back to 2019 and hits 50 home runs, then that's uh, an upside piece. And they have like, they have like Dom Smith too, who's like a interesting upside guy, but may not play that much. Um, I don't know. This is a team that has a bunch of guys. Like they have Jonathan VR. Really? Uh, yeah. Jonathan VR. Wow. He's on this roster as I'm looking at it right now. Uh, yeah, just a bunch of guys. We'll see. Uh, Brandon Nimmo is a good defender. I've always liked him. He plays. He gets on base like crazy. He walks like 15% of the time. I don't know. They have a lot of guys. I kind of like the Mets. If you just if you just remove the, the name Mets from the roster, I'd be intrigued by the Mets. <laughs> At the end of the day, that's my that's my that's my parting shot on the Mets. Is that if, uh, if you just don't call them the Mets, call them the New York something else, and maybe I'll buy it. But we'll see. And I, th- I think a weird thing about them too is with the New York media market, there's going to be. A lot of pressure. It's not something we can quantify, but if the Mets get off to like, I don't know, a two and four start, you know, the Sharks are going to be out with the tabloid headlines and so on and so forth. And it's going to be ridiculous and over the top. And you wonder how it's going to affect a guy like Lindor, who has played in a smaller market in Cleveland for his whole career and really hasn't had to deal with that kind of thing or, uh, I know someone like Walker who has been able to toil in like Seattle and uh, Arizona. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, you know, they had the whole offseason cycle of here come the Mets with the new ownership and there's buzz there. And if they get off to a bad start, maybe that gets in their heads and seeps in. Like you said, not quantifiable, but interesting nonetheless. Okay, we, we talked about all the teams. Uh, I just want to run through quickly like the, some positional group projections and see if you have any like huge pushback to these. These are all from Fangraphs. They have the Braves projected as the best offensive team in the NL East, followed by the Mets, Phillies, Nationals, and Marlins in that order. Does that bother you at all? Because I, I think that's probably what I would have as well in terms of at least at least I'm in the Braves first. I think the Braves have the best offense in, in the division right now. But do you disagree with that? No, I don't. I think the Nationals have potential to be a little bit better if things go right. Like Josh Bell was hideous last year. If he's somewhat better this year, I think the Nationals have potential to be a little better. Same thing with Victor Robles. But overall, I think that order uh, passes the smell test with me. Yeah, I I agree. Um, Rotation, Fangraphs has the Mets number one which is, as we just discussed, very volatile, but I get it on the talent perspective. Then the Nats, then the Phillies ahead of the Braves, and then the Marlins at the back. Uh, And like I said before, the Phillies were actually sneaky good pitching last year. I'm not sure how projectable that is, but that did happen. They were, they were actually, they actually led the NL East in Fangraph starting pitcher war last year. Um, Do you have any reaction to that order of the rotation? Because I I know Braves fans are going to hate hearing that the Braves are fourth, but I kind of, kind of get it at least. I'm not sure if I buy that, but I at least understand it. Yeah, the Braves are fourth, but it's not like they're fourth and in the bottom ten. They're still in the top ten in baseball. So yep. 
pump 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 the brakes a little bit there. It's not uh, some kind of huge gap. There. I believe they're ninth I, I think overall. It's fair yeah, ninth overall. There's plenty of questions here about uh, the rotation. Drew Smiley, how many innings is he actually going to throw this year? Uh, how healthy will Mike Soroka be coming back from the Achilles? Uh, will Max Freed be as awesome as he was again? How much does Charlie Morton have left in the tank and so on and so forth? There are real questions about the Braves rotation, and I don't think ranking them fourth is some kind of affront against them. Yeah, and uh, to your point, I believe I'm doing the math now. They are, they are ninth in baseball, so fourth in division does not mean bad. It's that uh, they're still, still top ten in the uh, in the league but uh, i think that all that all seems reasonable to me and uh, last thing on the team by team side the mets uh sorry yeah mets is the best bullpen as an eyebrow raiser that's for sure uh followed by the braves then the nationals then the phillies then the, then the marlins um i don't know what to make of the mets bullpen i'll be honest um seeing them there does not compute with me but then i realized how bad the other teams were other than the Braves last year in the bullpen, and the Braves bullpen got worse. Uh, there's no argument around that. The Braves bullpen is worse now than it was a year ago. Um, so I'm using this to ask you, as we, we talked about this before, but uh, on the podcast. But I want I want to know your I want to know your thoughts. Where's your level of concern about the Braves bullpen right now? Uh, when you guys talked about it a couple weeks ago, you mentioned how there's like meltdown potential with Tyler Matzik, and like my heart broke a little bit when you were talking about that, but. I completely agree because he's a guy that doesn't really have a track record of both health and effectiveness. Uh, last year was the like best combination of those two. I have no idea if he's going to be able to do it again this year. I really hope he will. Uh, but if he doesn't, it would not surprise me at all. And then you look at someone like AJ Minter who has had his ups and downs, but was fantastic last year. And then Will Smith is kind of the opposite. He was pretty bad last year but he had been consistently good before that so i think there is a a bunch of leveling out that can be done and then you have the rest of the guys that will eat innings and last year for the braves there were a lot of uh guys that were let's just say not very good that were (laughs) getting some of those innings so i think it makes sense for uh the braves to be ranked where they are and going back to the mets for a minute so much of this is based on Edwin Diaz yep. because his value gets inflated because he strikes so many guys out. Edwin Diaz alone is projected for 1.8 more, which is insane for a reliever. And to put that in perspective, the gap in projections between the Mets and the Braves on fan graphs is one win. So that one player is covering nearly double the gap between the two teams. Yeah, that is a, a good way of sort of laying that out. Uh, but I wanted to, I mean, I'm not worried about the bullpen for the Braves. I'm just not sure it's a strength in the way that it was last year, just because of the volatility overall and uh, the depth isn't quite there on the same level. And I hope that Matzik and Minter can repeat themselves. And I do agree that Smith is likely to bounce back because he is still good, I would think. But uh, we'll see how that all, how that all shakes out. Let me put it this way. I'm more concerned about the rotation than I am the bullpen. That's interesting to me. I think I buy that. Um, I, I I buy Charlie Morton uh, in a way that I seem to be very high on him. I'm not sure if it's because people are low on him or, or I'm high on him, but I, I trust Charlie Morton despite his age. But, I, you know, the way the rotation was last year is, like, hard to separate yourself from because it was so bad. Um, but the, the talent is obviously better than it was. And also the depth is reasonable. And when guys like Kyle Wright and Bryce Wilson are like your sixth and seventh starters, you feel better than if they were your third and fourth starters. Um, but I don't know. I, I think I actually might lean towards trust rotation more, but that seems crazy to say out loud after last year. I also think the guys at the back end of the rotation, like Wright and Wilson, I think they're going to get a little more rope this year because the season is longer and it's not a sprint. And if you have to throw someone like right out there for, I don't know, five innings in the middle of June, it won't hurt you as much compared to having him do that in a 60 game season. So I think that may uh, end up benefiting the team. Some of these guys will take a few more lumps and maybe be able to progress forward instead of having one start getting shelled and either getting sent to AAA slash the alternate site and or the bullpen. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess I'll ask you in terms of Brave stuff, and I'm, I'm going to make you do a prediction in a second. Um, I'm going to hold off until closer because it's my podcast, but since you're here. Uh, but before we get to that, what where does the season pivot for you, for the Braves? Like, Is there an X factor or two you're looking at? It's like, all right, if this goes well, they'll be fine. Uh-huh. Or maybe I'm just a player. Like, I know a lot of people are circling like, Dansby Swanson or Austin Riley as like pivot points. Do you have an X factor that you're kind of circling or is it just like the obvious stuff? I mean, outside of the obvious ones you mentioned, uh, I think Travis Darno is a big one because yeah. he was, uh, he was fantastic last year. And, uh, who knows if he, he'll be able to do that two years in a row. Who knows if, uh, the Braves will, uh, get that kind of production. And if they don't, uh, what does that say about the catching situation in 2022? Because they're, uh, they've got guys down the system with Contreras, Langoliers and so on and so forth. Will either of them be ready to take over if Darno uh, struggles to the point where the team needs to move on in 2022 or is at a point where the team is forced to move on in 2022. Yeah. I think Darno is a sneaky, interesting guy to monitor. We've not done our full fledged um, lineup preview yet. I think it's going to be next week, but Darno is a guy where he was above his head. Like we liked that signing. I know I did when they did it, but I was not expecting him to be as good as he was last year. And I think people need to understand he probably isn't going to be that good again. Um, just because of the sample and the fact that he was not quite that level anytime before that. Um, but not that good is still means he could still be a, a starting catcher without being that good. So it's like, where is his actual level? It's pretty interesting to me, and I'm not sure I have a good answer for you. Uh, but uh, and that kind of makes it a, he's a pretty natural X factor because of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if he uh, if he's not going to have a 144 WRC plus again, but if it's yeah. you know like 120 or something like that, I think we'd all take that every day oh, of the week and be fine with it. Certainly, uh, I would probably take even worse than that if you just offered me like a 110 WRC plus and health. For Darno, I would sign up for that for sure. I think that would be uh, very, very solid. And I am—I know you've probably heard me say this, but I am always the one to point out that the baseline at catcher is lower than everyone believes that it is. Uh, and catchers—the uh, Braves have been so good at catcher for a long time. People, people are spoiled by this, but um, you know this from watching the rest of the league. Like there are so many teams with just god awful catching situations that the, the baseline is just uh, having a good catcher is a very big luxury in a way that uh, helps the Braves. It feels like annually for the last decade, they've just been awesome at it for some reason. And they continue to be. It's weird that they've always had like good catchers, but I feel like since McCann, there hasn't been like that long-term franchisee catcher. It's all been like a series of stop gaps. And I'm hoping that either Contreras or Langoliers steps in and is the starting catcher for the next like eight years. Yeah, I mean, a great example of that is the Flowers-Suzuki pairing that was, like, the most boring thing on the world on paper, but it just worked fantastically, and they were, like, top five or six in catcher war every year they were together, despite both just being, like, you know, role players. Uh, Obviously, you know, there's some framing noise in there with Flowers, but they also just hit, too. Like, Kurt Suzuki had never hit, basically, ever, and then he came in the Braves and just raked. And they just have whatever, for whatever reason, they've been good at it for a long time. I'm knocking on wood right now, metaphorically, but uh, hopefully that continues. But I'm with you. Like, there's definitely some intrigue with Darno, who also also is in a free agent year. I mean, that's uh, noteworthy. He signed a two-year deal uh, in a, in a, uh, at a time when the Braves were not signing multi-year deals, except for Will Smith. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, a big year for Darno because if he's good again, do they, like, look to bring him back? Do they look to... Uh, maybe address that obviously with the guys you mentioned, like Langleers or Contreras. Uh, I don't know. I mean, if Darno does what he did last year, which again is not not likely in my mind, you don't just let him go without a fight. Like you, it's not like you just like, all right, we got to move on now. Because if he's that good again, he was a top five, six catcher in baseball last year. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure how real that is, but if that happens again, like I, you got you got to reevaluate a little bit, I guess. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's definitely going to be interesting. And also, uh, Freddie Freeman's contract. Oh, my God. Please get it done tomorrow. Uh, yeah, it would be good if that would be done. Uh, it's interesting. I'm not sure if we'll do an emergency podcast. I guess we probably, I guess we probably should. 
but it's like, what are we going to react to about Freeman's contract when it happens? If it happens, um, it's like, all right, that's a lot of money for Freddie Freeman. But he's really good. That's that's my that's my thought on Freddie Freeman's contract. What's it going to be? Is the I guess the question. I mean, we could guess all day long. Do you, do you have a thought of like even the range it'll be in? Because that's I'm having a hard time projecting it because he might take a little less. I feel like that's in play, but a little less is still like a ton of money. So <laughs> I don't I don't I don't know I don't know where, that, where that's supposed to land really. I think it's going to end up like five one fifty. Yeah, and if they did that, I'd, like it I'd be nice fine with even it. Number, but it makes sense too. I mean, he's worth that. I mean, I, I'm sure there'll be a part of the fan base that panics a little bit about the money, but it's just—I know they have these restrictions right now on the payroll this year, but Fred Freeman's—he's already been making twenty plus for a while, and he's been better than his contract the entire time basically like last year he was obviously the MVP of the league but uh even if he's just a little bit worse than that he's still worth 30 million dollars a year he's not that old and he's playing first base I mean he's not a guy who strikes me as, as a guy who's naturally going to age terribly I mean maybe I'll be wrong about that but he feels pretty stable to me even into his mid-30s which is what that contract would be as long as Albies is on the team under this current contract, you're not allowed to complain <laughs> about Freeman's contract. I, str- I strongly, I strongly agree with you on that uh, in general, and and I think the hope, obviously, for Bryce fans payroll wise, would be that obviously this year there's a, um, seems, there seems to be a pretty firm payroll ceiling that they've given Anthopolis, which is unfortunate. But you would you would hope that once the pandemic is behind us. Uh, maybe that changes for 22 and beyond. They go back up to a little bit higher like they were last year because you know, we were all kind of pleasantly surprised, at least I was, last year when the Braves spent more than I was expecting them to spend. So maybe that'll happen again once they're out of the woods. I don't know. Also very important, 2022. Uh, this this actually is my specialty. Uh, new TV money kicks in. So uh team's going to have a lot more money to spend that way. Oh, the Braves money comes uh, it's 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 22 uh, the, the Bally, the new Bally deal or uh no, new no, national no, that, deal. Is the, that is the national, national TV okay. money from Fox, Turner and yep. uh, ESPN eventually. Uh I don't remember the exact amounts off the top of my head, but I want to say it's like 40% more. Uh that's a lot of money across the That league. is a lot of money. Uh, did, did you appreciate that I got that I got the name of the network correctly when I said Bally? Because I uh, I usually I usually mess that up on the on the Hawk side. But oh man, we could have a long conversation about this, my friend. Bally Sports Southeast, folks, get ready. Um, we'll leave that we'll leave that alone for now. We'll, Joe can do that in his day job. Uh, all right, last thing before I let you get out of here, uh, I need a projection from you, and hopefully you're prepared for this. If not, you can make it up on the fly. A projection of the division order. And Braves win total as we stand here. I, I, I will I will acknowledge it's March twelfth. This is unfair to you, but because you're here, I have to ask you to go on record. All right, I will go. Braves, Phillies, Mets, Nationals, Marlins. Oh, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> Phillies. Phillies two is like almost more controversial than Mets three. I'm not sure if it is or not, but that's I, I like it. Whatever it is, I'm I'm going out on a limb there a little bit, and uh, I've gone out on limbs before, and I'm not afraid if they break. I'm not the smallest dude in the world. Uh, <laughs> and as for a win total, give me... man, you said the over under was 91 and a half. I like the it over is. on that. I'm I'm gonna say 93 and 69. A very nice record for the Braves. An extremely nice uh, Braves record. I'm actually looking because I'm really bad at this. I never remember what the Braves' win totals are in the regular season, so I, I've forgotten what they what they've done the last couple of years. Obviously, last year was the weird season. I'm looking it up now. Yeah, they won. I think it was 96, 97. They won 97 Oof. in 2019 after winning 90 in 2018. That one, that one, I actually did remember because it was kind of out of nowhere. And they won 90. Um, but yeah, 96 would be their second most wins since 2004. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, that, that seems reasonable to me. 96 wins would be their pace from last year was about that as well. So that's kind of a, it basically be their repeat of two years in a row from what their actual win loss or winning percentage was. So uh, not, it might seem bold, but it's, it's really not. It's more like, all right, dude, they're just going to roll it out and do it again, <laughs> which they might do. I remember this is me, Captain Negative talking. It's true. I was, uh, I was a little bit not surprised that much, but uh, for you to go, you know, four and a half wins over the total is considerable. I mean, we are notable. We're noted on this podcast for being too negative about the Braves. Um, I think that might've changed a little bit in the last year or so, but 
mine will be a little bit lower than I said. I think it's going to be lower than that. I'm not sure yet where I'm going to be, um, but I'll be surprised if I project 96 wins. I think 96 wins is definitely in play. But that seems a little bit high, but I appreciate that out of you, Joe, because I mean that, that makes me feel like, like I'm, like I'm going to be too low because, like you said, you are not the most optimistic person, at least in this, in, in this space. And something that's kind of underrated with the NL East teams is uh, they play the uh, AL East again in interleague, which I, I despise, but that's neither here nor there. And uh, <laughs> I think the, I think the AL East stinks, and I think Ooh, okay. the NL East is going to uh, feast. So you think the AL East stinks? Obviously, the Yankees are supposed to be good again. Uh, are they going to be good? I assume they're going to be good. But Boston, I've been, I've been down on the Yankees for like the last eight years because of their rotation. And uh, I am down on the Yankees again this year because of their rotation. So there's that. Garrett, Garrett Cole and friends, basically. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the or- the Orioles are a horror show. I think yes. Toronto is really good. Uh, Boston, I think, stinks. And uh, Tampa. Tampa is a disgrace. A disgrace? Wow. Shots fired at the race. <laughs> because of the way they handle things or because they're going to be bad at baseball? That's uh, because of the way they handle okay. things. I, I thought and so. But... I think they've been a little too cute for a little long. And uh, it went well for them last year. But I think that uh, it's going to fall apart in a longer season. You can't ride the bullpen like they did all year. I'm just very glad we got to the end of the podcast and got you riled up enough to drop a disgrace on the Tampa Bay Rays. <laughs> So that, that kind of counteracts your 96 win prediction on the Braves. I just wanted to get you a little bit, of, a little bit of your personality out here, Joe. You had to, you had to go in on something. So it was the Rays, apparently catching, catching strays. The I end mean, of the, end of the podcast. my life for the past like six months has been Premier League, so I need to get like amped about something in baseball. Uh, yeah. I mean, I could bring you on to talk about like the NHL TV rights deal, which, which is like your media beat the last few days i would imagine or uh the terrible apology thing that circulated that you referenced earlier on the, earlier on the podcast oh, but uh hey a fun week for me uh i don't know i mean i guess we'll leave it there for now do you have anything to plug i know we we've talked around it but you are i believe the managing editor of awfulannouncing.com is that is that correct i don't really have a title anymore so I'm sure just kind managing of like editor. A, i'm like a guy that does a lot of stuff and has done it for like nine years now awful announcements is a pretty big deal so uh, that's 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 a that's a cool thing is, is there anything that you're uh wanting to showcase that you've done i know you have in the past you've like ranked announced teams those are always your big big hits on your site that i've uh, seen you do but anything got going out that you want to share with people uh in like a week and a half we'll be ranking the announcers from the ncaa tournament so yeah. uh, That'll be fun. Looking forward to that. And I actually did write something about the NHL TV deal, winners and losers, in case you're a hockey fan. I read that. All the Thrashers fans out there and didn't want to uh, burn you with that. But uh, that was pretty fun to write. So, uh, yeah, I've actually uh, done some stuff this week, which is pretty cool. I read that. And um, I will just say about the March Madness TV announcers to put this bug in your ear, at least there is no Chris Weber. Congratulations. How much does that hurt you to say as a Michigan man? Uh, not at all. I'm not a Weber guy. I know I know he's a Michigan guy, but uh, there's I'm not a Weber guy. It's okay. Um, he's very bad at his job. Uh, he was really he was really good at basketball, like playing basketball. He's a very bad announcer. Uh, so that's uh, I guess a little point to you. You don't have to go back and do your exhaustive study about um, announcing teams and listen to him call, call college basketball because one of my pet peeves, as we're off the rails here at the end of the podcast, is uh, I, I I know why they do this. Because CBS and Turner have the um, crossover thing, uh, but they put all of their NBA people on the tournament, and they just don't know what they're talking about, and it drives me crazy. So this year is good because of the quarantine rules. So there's like very little NBA crossover. Yep, exactly. I'm looking forward to it because they've really leaned back into their college people who actually cover college basketball. I mean, I'm sure there'll be too much Barkley in the in the studio for me because he does, he just doesn't know anything about what's going on. But uh, yeah, just a a small sports sports media sidebar. I'm a, I'm a, definitely a sports media nerd, which is why I read all of your content and awful announcing and uh, why we're friends. So thank you. Thank you for doing this, Joe. I appreciate you having me, Brad on this Friday night. Uh, follow Joe on, on Twitter at Joe underscore TOC. I believe is correct. Still nailed it. Despite the uh, RIP to the outside corner. <laughs> I can't change my Twitter handle to my actual name, so might as well just keep it the way it is. Uh, it's appropriate for this podcast. Uh, anyway, follow follow Joe for uh, occasional Braves takes, as well as uh, sports media stuff and soccer and whatever else. And Baltimore Ravens. Um, 
that's a whole other story. Uh, but that's that's happening over on Joe's Twitter feed. Uh, please follow this podcast uh, by, by, by subscribing. We had Road to Atlanta twice in the last eight days, plus this, this show and last week. I talked to Scott for a long time. Lots of content. Subscribe, rate, review, all that stuff. Check out the site for all the written content. Thanks again to Joe, and we'll see you all next time.